Radio episode number 47. I'm, of course, your host, Mike. Well, one of your hosts, because I'm also joined by Chris. How's it going, Chris? Um, okay, sleep derived, uh, <laughs> derived sleep deprived, and uh, my brain is exactly like that, like cheese with lots of holes through it after uh, running Silitech last night. Yes, you brave, brave man. Brave you ran it and we all survived. Yes. My character um, only made three insanity checks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's up on Google Plus now, so uh, people are hopefully watching that, and we'll provide that in the show notes. It was all right. It was good fun. Um, but yeah, <laughs> let's talk about something else. Well, let's talk about our uh, guest right here. We've got Matt yeah. McElroy from uh, Drive Through RPG, One Bookshelf, and all that good stuff. How's it going, Matt? Great. Thanks for having me Hi, on the show. Oh, it's our pleasure. And uh, you're here to talk to us a little bit about some of the work you're doing for White Wolf, uh, some of the work you're doing for One Bookshelf, and, uh, you know, just giving some of your insight into the world of darkness as well. So uh, we definitely uh, really appreciate that. I am a man of many hats, but I'm not the black hat man. Oh, oh no. no. Oh, actually, fun fact. So um, <laughs> when we had Black Matt hat, uh, black hat Matt on uh, about a year ago, when I was saying his name in the beginning, I was, I was going like, Matt Miguel uh, Farland. <laughs> I was totally this, messing it up. This has happened before. Yes. So, Matt, we actually had you on uh, nearly two and a half years ago um, to talk about uh, Now in Print when that first came out, which was uh, pretty cool. And uh, I seem to remember that you were about to start up a, uh, a Chicago Chronicle for Vampire the Masquerade. Did, did that get off the ground? Yeah. I'm trying to remember how long the game ran, but uh, they went up against the brood and carved out a little piece of domain for themselves and yeah it was an awesome game cool and uh, i think with that let's just move on over to uh white wolf news yeah so white wolf news pretty huge is uh god machine chronicles now out uh, we're going to be discussing that a little bit later but it's pretty huge, I gotta say. It is huge. And the cool thing is that all the new rules in that book are available for free to download. So you can basically grab it for a taster, and if you really, really like it, you should get the rest of the book. So that's wicked. Yeah, it totally is. And uh, it's not too expensive either. 30 bucks for a core book, uh, 250 pages or so. Definitely a good deal if you want to get it in print. Mm-hmm. Yep, PDF's only 18, so... I am in the process of writing my review for it, so that will be going up on uh, on uh, Drive Through RPG. The review for that, and I'll be posting up here. But of course, later on the show, I will be talking about it. So, yeah, that's wicked. Absolutely, I definitely recommend people check out the fiction anthology that goes with it. Oh yes, yes, because um, there's a few. I noticed in the book, there's a few nodbacks to some of the uh, fiction anthology stories there. So um, that's really cool to see that. And again, it's just more. More plot hooks, which is great. Absolutely. And uh, something else that's been going on is uh, the W20 
book has gone through some proofing and uh, it's back to the printer. So hopefully we'll be getting that soon. Uh, same thing with uh, Mummy the Curse. Yes, Mummy the Curse. Is, I think we had a preview of what its final cover and some of the interior artwork will look like. Um, yeah. yeah, it's almost nice. Look- yes, finally. And the uh, other thing that's going on is uh, Exalted Third. So, Chris, you're probably paying a bit more attention to this than I am, but uh, I did notice that it was successfully funded in 18 minutes. Yes, it currently stands at almost $320,000. So that's like over five times the initial goal. And something which I read is apparently is now the fourth highest back tabletop rpg kickstarter so that's very impressive um i mean it's obviously it's it's a it's more than just like it's it's even a bigger product than like mummy the curse so it's more in line with say werewolf 20 and vampire 20 so this is a this is a jillux copy so the reason why the pledging uh you know the pledge amount to get the hard copy is so high is because this is a super duper 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 edition hard copy and has a awesome cover and other stuff to go with it like most of the books there'll definitely be a pdf and pod versions on drive through um but this yeah. is for the deluxe limited edition yeah again it really forces the whole the whole point that you know the nice thing is that the uh onyx path uh kickstarters are not necessarily they're not necessarily a a, uh, a pr- that it's not necessarily meant to be a pre-order. It's a way of getting, you know, for fans to get an item which is just insane. Yeah, it's it's um, harkens back to the old limited edition copies that they did for Vampire and Mage and whatnot. Um, and it's not something Onyx Path is in a position to just do a print run of and stick in a warehouse mm. and hope they sell. So Kickstarter allows them to uh, see how many fans want this and explore Like some of the bonus stretch goal stuff is um, definitely things that weren't going to be on the schedule on their own. Mm. But uh, fans get to give feedback and make something cool happen. Like um, the cloth map is not something yeah. that... Onyx Path was set up to do without this kind of uh, pre-funding and and excitement and uh, pledges where people are really want this item. Yeah, Uh, and the cool things with Exalted Third Edition because I've played both, I've run both previous editions. Um, uh, You know, I really, of course, love the setting, and uh, you know, my players have enjoyed it, but obviously. Second edition, in my mind, was mired with some clunky mechanics with combat. And so um, there's some interesting talk here and there on, like, say, on the White Wolf forums and on RPG Net with regard to little inklings about how the rules for combat are being changed to be uh, more representative to of these cinematic combats rather than just rolling for every damned attack because Exalted really isn't about role is isn't really needed for that kind of fine that fine graduations of combat so that's really cool and of course the setting is getting such a a nice overhaul in some respects like the creation now is going to be something like three times bigger and so it means the geography of the world is opened up there's it's less uh it's less less monotonous when you get to the polar uh the, the polar regions when i say poles i mean there are five directional poles so 
there's a there's like an inland sea that they've added in and it just looks it's just bigger and more room for your own kingdoms and uh adventuring so i'm really looking forward to it because i mean exalted up there is one of my favorite fantasy settings next to currently what iron kingdoms so yeah expect a darker days darkening on it when it gets released <laughs> all right sounds good to me and uh let's move on over, over to some darker days news uh first mm-hmm. off chris we had a contest didn't we oh yes we we are privileged enough to have excellent listeners who use our affiliate code with uh drive rpg to buy stuff and that means we get some a bit of credit to spend on things and we just spend it on prizes so we're giving away a pdf copy of mummy the curse and the question we asked was in the new world of darkness which group of vampires claims its origin with the cult of set and we had we had a a good 20 or so entries did we Mike? some somewhere near that so that was actually pretty good i think for us um (laughs) And the actual answer I was initially looking for, and it was maybe a bit of an oversight on my part, is, of course, Clan Mechat. Though some more informed or, or listeners thinking a little bit deeper, of course, gave the bloodline of the Mechat known as the Kybit. So we're accepting that answer as well. So That's what I would you... have picked. Yeah, so I wasn't thinking that far. I went, Clan Mechat, because the amount of... The amount of cult of setites answers that we got. Mm. Anyway, so uh, Mike, you have a way of randomizing out of our entries, out of our actual, you know, correct entries, uh, who the winner is. Yes, I have a uh, sweet virtual adept script, which I'm going to run <laughs> right now to see who the winner is. Oh my god, I got an error. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got it. Will Pell is the winner. Cool. So there we go. He will get a email with a uh, a link to that PDF, uh, as we will forward that to him uh, via the DriveThruRPG website. So yay! And yeah, I haven't actually been on our account there, so we should be racking up hopefully some more um, credit because people are saying on even on Reddit that they should buy stuff through our links in order to get us more credit so we can give away more prizes. So everyone wins. Um, cool. Uh, what else we got, Mike? Um, we have some rumors. Uh, yeah, we do. Um, so rumor has it that there's going to be a Darker Days sister show in the works. Uh, we're kind of discussing that with uh, the two individuals that uh, are interested and... Uh... Should be should be really cool. It's gonna be classic world of darkness focused, so um we'll have more on that uh as as it develops. Mm-hmm. And then of course recently we have had the CCP fanfest, um, where they revealed some more information what little information they have on uh World of Darkness online, the World of Darkness MMO. There's some really cool stuff in there. I mean, um to help them develop the worlds quicker. quicker. I think the most interesting thing to me has been their procedural programming to allow them to quickly um, quickly render buildings and quickly build them so they don't have to worry about all the, the little glitches and bugs and having to build each building themselves. They just kind of make a, make a shape 
and then it fills and it does what it needs to. Um, and that's looking really cool. But of course, before FanFest, we were on the wadnews.net, um, do we say it's not really a podcast, it's more like a, a video blog. Yeah, yeah. Blog is good. Yeah. Uh, which is Radio Midnight. And so I was on, and of course you were Mike, and we were joined by a few people from whatnews.net. And I think what were we talking about? Um, Talked about a bit of everything. Um, yeah. Well, of how they would, how we think they might potentially implement mechanics, uh, particularly with regard to disciplines and uh, blood bonds, that kind of thing. And we we're also discussing your, your ideas for um, social currency, basically. Yeah, social currency, because obviously you get these things like uh, um, clout and Empire Avenue and uh, cred and all these other ways of like gauging social networks and basically creating uh, a kind of a stock market of your social uh, your social value, your social worth. And of course, that kind of makes sense when you think about um, World of Darkness and vampires in particular, because of course, many of the disciplines in, in Vampire the Masquerade due to their social nature, are just not going to translate into an online gameplay. So maybe there's something where you have all these resources linked to who you're linked to and who you're talking to, where these powers kind of massage those numbers and make them do what you want. So, and I, I don't know, I'm getting the feeling that it could be exactly leading to that direction, because there's the talk about how you play the MMO while not actually playing the MMO. So it's like how you can link to it via, you know, mobile technology um so that's kind of cool yep should be pretty exciting and one other thing another bit of news is uh we're gonna have some more contests coming up uh graciously matt has uh, agreed to provide us with perhaps some copies of haunted flames rising uh horror anthology and maybe some gift certificates Yep, definitely. Uh, Haunted, if you're not aware of it, features uh, stories by several White Wolf uh, contributors, Rich Dansky, Chuck Windig, uh, Jess Hartley, just to name a few. Um, If you've liked uh, Orpheus and Wraith and Hunter, there's there's stuff in there for everybody. Mm Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, it's a good read. I mean, I ha- I'll be honest, I've not finished reading them all, but I mean, it's a short story. It's got loads of short stories books, so it, um, I'll mostly be dipping back into it as I start developing my ideas for my Geist Chronicle. Mm. Sweet. <laughs> so, I think that brings us to the end of Dark Days news. It does. So let's move on over to a quick uh, Q&A with Matt McElroy. Topics of highbrow storytelling. All right, Matt. Before we get started with discussing like drive through cards and drive through RPG, you were on the show previously, but we didn't really talk about your uh, your geek cred. So how did you get started with RPGs? I think my first, I mean, I played D&D a little bit here and there off and on, but it wasn't really, I didn't really get into it until the Marvel role-playing game from TSR came out. Uh, a couple of neighbors were looking for players and I was like, sure, I'll try that. And... Um, pretty much ever since I've been buying games, trying out games, and uh, this year is going to be my 22nd Gen Con in a row. Wow. That's uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I've been RPGing for pretty much as long as I can remember in one form or another. Right on. Cool. And uh, how'd you start with uh, One Bookshelf? Flames Rising originally started as a site for my vampire uh, LARP 
which eventually about a year or so before Gehenna came out was start, starting to wrap up, but we didn't want to shut the site down. So we started posting some articles about LARPing in the world of darkness and reviewing some of the books that had come out at that time. And several of us that were contributors to the site, um, we were into other games and comics and fiction, so we started expanding the focus of the site quite a bit to include horror as an entire genre, um, still with lots of World of Darkness content, naturally. But um, over the years, I'd interviewed lots of creators, and we'd reviewed lots of books. Uh, so I knew a lot of people in the industry, and I met people at White Wolf and people at One Bookshelf, and... Uh, eight years ago or so now, uh, Diamond, the comic distributor, changed how they order books from publishers. So a lot of small press publishers were uh, kind of cut out of the traditional distribution. So I called Steve Wick, uh, who's the CEO of One Bookshelf, and said, you should probably take this opportunity with drive Through Comics and jump on this and reach out to these publishers that need to get their books out in front of fans so he's like well let's see what you can do about it and i'm like okay cool right on yeah it it was sort of uh uh wasn't planned but it worked out pretty well and then i stayed with the company and moved into the rpg side of things and now i do most of the marketing for the company excellent all right matt so let's talk a little bit about drive through cards uh it's one of the uh it is the newest feature uh, for one bookshelf, and I'm really excited about it because I look at a lot of these um, old like collectible card games, and I see like a huge opportunity to revive some of the old good ones that came out in, in that glut. But there's also mm. a, definitely a huge option for uh, for new companies to bring out uh, their own card games, not through maybe like traditional publishers and that sort of thing. So, uh, what made you guys? Uh, get excited to do drive through cards and uh who are some of the uh current partners and that kind of stuff well cards uh has always been something we've carried in digital on drive through um print and play type of things plus mm -hmm. uh support products like rule books and uh, strategy guides and things like that so even white wolf obviously has made a number of different card games over the years so Several of our publisher partners, uh, AEG, um, they've all been in the card game business at one point or another. So we were looking at some of the opportunities to deliver digital editions uh, as mm. their own platform. And then uh, just like book print-on-demand, uh, the ability to print cards in small batches has evolved dramatically over the last few years. So we partnered with a company called ODT to produce print-on-demand cards the same way uh, Lightning Source is our book print-on-demand partner. Um, but if you drop by drivethroughcards.com, you can see a number of companies that have already uploaded either digital uh, print or combination packs of cards. And the independent publishing aspect of drive-thru-cards is the part I'm most excited about because one of the challenges of producing a card game is the sheer upfront cost. Mm -hmm. So this really gives small press and independent creators a chance to uh, create a game, upload it, and get it out to the world without having to, you know, mortgage their house. <laughs> so, um, and it gives fans everywhere a chance to check out something that they might not ever see because there's a lot of people that don't get to go to Gen Con and whatnot. So this 
gives them an opportunity to check out really cool games that don't have a huge marketing budget and give them a try. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, One Bookshelf is also uh, putting their money where their mouth is because uh, they're trying to bring back Vampire the Eternal Struggle in uh, conjunction with uh, Wizards of the Coast and CCP. So... I'm definitely very excited about that as a uh, VTest player, but uh, it's also going to have uh, quite a few challenges with, um, you know, all the uh, all the licensing and that kind of stuff. Uh, do you foresee a lot of these, uh, a lot more old card games uh, being brought back? We're definitely talking to at least a dozen different companies. Um, Chaosium is one of them that we're talking to about some of their older games, mm-hmm. and then uh, Cheap Ass Games is another one. AEG. Oh, perfect. Perfect. So mm-hmm. nothing's been like 100% decided, but we're definitely exploring all of the different avenues that we can. Hey, that's all I ask. <laughs> um, and I see here, you did make a note of this, but uh, of course, people uh, listening to Darker Days are probably going to be curious about uh, both Rage and Arcadia the Wild Hunt, the uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse and uh, Changing the Dreaming card games, uh, respectively. So uh, any word about those? It It's not pretty at the moment, um, mostly because the assets, the original production files for those games are so outdated and the software that they use is uh, very not current that assembling any sort of actual print file from that is extremely challenging. So um, some of the assets, especially for Arcadia, might be missing or destroyed. So we, we don't know for sure what even the possibility of making a like a starter deck would be mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. but one uh, previous white wolf card game uh, that i did notice is back is of course pimp the backhanding so that's pretty cool to see but uh apparently it's uh it's not actually licensed from white wolf white wolf had previously had the license so it's uh the existing owners now printing it yeah um for you guys probably remember for a time White Wolf was printing and distributing books for Goodman Games, Melhavoc Press, mm-hmm. um, uh, the guys that made the steampunk dragon game. What was that called? Dragon uh, Mech. Yeah, right. right. Um, and I think uh, there was another one, a couple of them. Anyway, um, Pimp was a was a similar deal. A uh, couple of creators had came up with this idea, but like I had mentioned earlier, card games are extremely expensive to produce. So they made a deal with White Wolf that White Wolf would do the printing and distribution for a share of the revenue. Um, the great thing about drive through cards is that kind of deal is no longer needed. So these guys were able to get all of their assets together and make a re- basically a reprint uh, on drive through cards, and they don't have to have another company that they answer to anymore. So... Is there, I don't know, this may be a bit crazy, but is there even um, the idea of, like, uh, there was at a time, you know, a lot of these constructible kind of uh, kind of games that were actually printed on, you know, card-sized things. So Oh, oh yeah. It, like uh, Pirates of the Main. Matt, are we going to see Racer Knights of Falconis yeah. uh, return? Yeah. Um, that's another one that's actually owned by somebody else. So there, okay. it's a possibility. Um, yeah. So we'll have to see. Uh, right now, we don't have the 
set up to do the like the punch cards yes. or the perforated. Um, but we do on Drive Through RPG, for example, a couple of weeks ago, we did a big promotion around our new uh, map double-sided map tiles. Uh, Fat yep. Dragon Games and Dramascape and a couple of other companies. Uh, it's really cool. They're uh, six-inch square um, maps that you can mix and match and make castles and uh, put your minis out on them. They're uh, it's pretty awesome. So we're definitely exploring. We don't just do you know playing cards anymore. So um, yeah, that's really good to know. Yeah, um, because um, I only brought it up because again, that was another kind of another thing that kind of fell into the kind of card game sort of uh, uh, you know genre, but it wasn't really a card game yet. Yeah, and of course, we've moved on with so many different printing techniques these days that some of these things may be a bit easier to do than they were ten years ago or five years ago. That's really wicked. Hmm. And I guess this is more of a highbrow question, Matt, but uh, uh, <laughs> Sandrigger asked us that uh, given that a lot of you know friendly local game stores have uh, a big market in secondhand uh, resale of collectible cards, do you think uh, drive-thru cards may eventually have some kind of impact on that? Um, it's certainly possible. Um, there's always going to be people that want like first printings, um, especially for games like Magic the Gathering. Um, but one of the neat things is reprinting some old games will actually increase the audience for those mm. games. So take mm. Vitesse, for example. There's a lot of people that have never played it. If we do manage to bring it back, uh, that's a whole new market opening up that some of those people will want to go back and collect and fill out their collection. And um, I think stores will benefit from more people playing. And some of these games will actually go uh, be available to retailers, depending on the publisher and what kind of deals they set up. So that might get new product for them as well. Oh, perfect! Hey, that's really good to hear. That's really cool. Yeah, because yeah, that'd be it'd be really nice to have so many of these things back in print. Not only just so people can order, but to, you know, be shipped out to local gaming stores. That's really really cool. Yeah, each publisher will come up with their own business plan yeah. for that. But uh, we're definitely going to help with whatever they want to happen. I guess the one thing that protects like original printings is the fact you get um, foil cards and holographic from <laughs> from you know classic to like a, a classic thing that uh, you see in Magic the Gathering. Um, excellent. Also, I think the kind of nice thing to know about the idea of printing of, of uh, card games it kind of goes hand in hand with how certain card games are like also being developed into kind of like a, an online medium. So it kind of makes card games are becoming more accessible by printing on demand and also playing on things like tablets and, and on computers. Yeah, Cryptozoic has a Kickstarter for a new game that's both a card game and an MMO. It's okay. a really neat blend of the two technologies. And uh, it, it's I, I've looked at the page once and I'm trying not to get sucked in. So I don't, I don't know if I'll be successful. I'm sure I'll be a backer before too long. Yeah, indeed, indeed. All right, uh, I think that's just about it regarding drive-thru cards. So let's talk about drive-thru RPG and uh, now in print just a little bit. So Matt, mm -hmm. you were on the show, uh, as I mentioned, two and a half years ago, kind of telling us about uh, your print-on-demand service just as it was coming out. So how has your uh, relationship with Lightning Source, your your printer, grown? And We certainly have more books 
going through them every day. So that's uh, but uh, the biggest recent addition was the standard color printing option, which rolled out to a lot of different products. It's uh, a way of producing color books at uh, slightly less cost than the premium editions. So far, it's been a real success. I don't know if you guys have seen any of the standard color books as of yet. Uh, I don't think I've gotten any. No, I haven't got any yet. I have a copy of uh, the V20 Companion, but I believe that came out before the standard. That was premium. Yep. Yeah. Um, I did post a couple of links showing some examples, so you can actually view the two side by side. So we're uh, we're actually doing... It's up to each publisher, but for example, with White Wolf Onyx Path, a lot of the books are going to get both options available. So for God Machine, there's a PDF, there's a standard color, and a premium color, so people can choose which one is right for them. Right. Okay. And using the standard color, that's how we can get the, uh, you know, changing the lost core book that's actually green instead of black and white. Yeah, I've got a couple copies here. They just look awesome. Ah, so standard color allows that, yeah, because uh, one core book that's missing out of my collection is Hunter the Vigil, so, uh, yeah, nice, cool. Yeah, it's a great way of uh, keeping that two-tone color mm. without, um, you know, some, for some, the premium color version is outside their price range, so this gives them options. What do you guys at One Bookshelf see yourselves doing next uh, beyond like books and cards um we're definitely exploring a lot the map tiles was a new, was a new uh experiment that seemed to go over really well so uh we want to look into um other formats for cards uh other products that one of our two print partners can offer um we've tossed around uh as a discussion topic the idea of maps Mm -hmm. uh, which, which could also be useful on like our comic site as prints for artists offering, you know, think of a, a mouse guard print by David Peterson or something cool like that. Mm -hmm. Or uh, speaking of werewolf, pe people have requested some of the character splats. If we could get that technology working right, that would be kind of neat. Yeah, definitely. It's a big if right now, so nobody take that <laughs> as fact. It's just something we're looking into. Good clarification. All right, now stepping away from uh, one bookshelf for a bit, uh, Matt, you've also been doing a little bit of freelancing. So you've, of course, been working on the V20 Red List. Uh, is that done yet? or uh... No. Um, when I first pitched the book, it was during the Kickstarter for um, Children of the Revolution. Um, and then I had Gen Con and PAX and a dozen conventions. Plus, we rolled out our D&D &D classics and drive through cards sites. So I happened to pitch a new book in the middle of probably my busiest season of the year. And Justin was also extremely busy working on uh, Hunters Hunted 2 and Anarchs Unbound. So I didn't actually get developer notes from him for a couple of months. So there was a little bit of a delay there, but... As to make up for the delay, we've actually doubled the size of the book. Oh, nice. So from its original concept to what it's going to be. It's in second draft phase at the moment. Uh, I've brought on Monica Valentinelli to uh, write some of the sections. So it's going to be a pretty sweet book, I think. 
Outstanding. So uh, is it just sticking with the Kindred Most Wanted, like updating uh, them? or That's the core of the of the book is updating the red list and what's happened with the Camarilla since the Kindred Most Wanted came out. Um, if you read like Knights of Prophecy and Children of the Children of the Night, a few of those characters were killed or captured. Um, mm-hmm. And the concept behind the red list is that the Justicars do change it. They update it when names get dropped off, new names get added. And the Camarilla has obviously been extremely busy with the whole war against the Sabbat on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of candidates uh, ripe for that list. So uh, everyone's getting a, a an updated background. Everyone that's still on the list from the original is getting an update, uh, kind of a polish, because uh, Kindred Most Wanted came out some time ago. So none of them have been idle in that time. And then some new characters are being added to the list to fill in the, the empty spots. Um, and then the rest of the book is about using the anathema in your game, challenges and advice for storytellers on how to, without making them just a video game boss bad guy, how to make them interesting antagonists. And then we're also doing a chapter on uh, running a chronicle as uh, an Alaster. Those are the characters that hunt the red list. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of a specialized archon. Okay. So, so we're going to have an entire chapter on um, running your game as an Alaster Chronicle. Good. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely exciting to see it become more of a, a full source book than... Uh, than yeah, so it'll, it'll have elements of uh, Kindred Most Wanted, elements of um, uh, the Archons and Templars. Mm-hmm. Uh, focused specifically on the Alasters, which are the hunters. Think of them as uh, the Camarillas, U.S. Marshals. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then we'll have some story hooks and teasers. And um, if you if you want to expand your Chronicles Red List past thirteen, like we'll have ideas on how to do that and how to make it. Um, because, you know, like in the United States, the FBI has the 10 most wanted, but they obviously have a, lit, a large list of uh, criminals that mm-hmm. they're investigating and seeking that goes past those 10. So if you wanted to expand your list uh, as the Camarilla being more aggressive and saying, here's the 50 of our most hated enemies, we discuss a little bit about how that could work. Okay. And Matt, you're also working on a Hunt of the Vigil book. Could you give us some details about that? Um, yeah, that's scheduled for later this year. Hunt of the Vigil had some fantastic source books like Witchfinders and Nightstalkers, uh, which explored some of the other World of Darkness games through the lens of Hunter. Well, a number of them uh, did not get that treatment, so I pitched... Uh, an idea that exp- that takes that and runs with it. Hunter did also not get a Night Horrors book, so I've taken two concepts and kind of merged them together into a new book. Okay. And this is actually the first time I've ever publicly said what the book is about, so you guys kind of got an exclusive there. Oh, sweet. <laughs> yes. I'm, yeah, this is going to be cool, so yeah, go for it. <laughs> so... Yeah, Hunter is definitely one of my favorite games, and a lot of people over the years have asked what 
what kind of reaction hunters would have to the lost or to uh, the okay. created, and that hasn't been explored in the game much. So here's a chance for us to really dive into those, how the different hunter groups uh, interact with these other supernaturals and how the mm -hmm. supernaturals fit into the hunter concept. For example, are do hunters consider mummies to be monsters or allies or somewhere in the middle? It mm -hmm. probably depends on the individual hunter. So, and we may be also exploring some of the god machine rules okay. and how they affect hunter. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I, I can imagine it would be the changing bit would be is will be interesting to see uh, the hunter's. Uh, point of view on the relationship between a changeling and its fetch because of course the question for them is which is the real thing and then there's the yeah that's uh that's very cool and and also i guess a, a hunter's perspective on how uh, a promethean following its milestones to become human and whether once they become human whether they're still fair game or not that's uh That'll be really interesting. Yep, those are definitely some of the questions we're going to explore in this new book. Cool, that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, wow. Yeah, I can't wait to see that one then. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I'm currently in the outlining stage and contacting some of the freelancers that I'd like to work on individual sections of the book. Perfect. Nice. All right, Matt, since uh, you may be bowing out of the episode a little bit early, we're going to skip down to the bottom and ask some of our uh, your standard questions. So whenever someone's on the show for the first time, we always ask them a question. Everyone except for Matt McElroy, because I forgot to ask it when you were on the show two and a half years ago. <laughs> so we got to make up for that right now. Matt, if you could be a household appliance, which would you be and why? Mm, coffee maker, because of the caffeine. <laughs> Is a good one, but as a coffee maker, you don't really get to drink the caffeine; just kind of well, you kind of soaked you. in it, you know. Oh, <laughs> so you can nice. sort of like absorb through osmosis. Perfect, perfect. And my coffee machine, on occasion, just spits out coffee for no reason. So, <laughs> yeah. Is there Probably a particular the... type of coffee machine you would prefer to be? Because obviously, there's such a range of them. You got these damn. Nespresso, Tassimo things, would it be a Yeah, coffee? I haven't bought one of those yet, but I'm tempted. Proper espresso or a proper espresso um, machine? Yeah, I've got one of those um, curing uh, single cup brewers. Okay, yeah. Um, I pretty much like that, but mm -hmm. um, I make lots of trips over there. So. Yeah. <laughs> and Matt, um, so if you were a porn star, what would your porn star name be? Let's see if anyone gets this. I'm going to go with Maxwell Carpenter. Maxwell Carpenter. That's a World of Darkness Easter egg for you. Carpenter. Okay, well, Carpenter is a uh, is is his first name Maxwell? That is the uh, that is the the Risen from Hunter. Yes. He was also in the the Year of the Scarab trilogy yes. and uh, the Shadow Player's Guide for Wraith. Okay. So, so you be a dead guy? <laughs> I'll let people read into that what they want. <laughs> Because he wasn't always a dead guy. That's true. Huh. Okay. <laughs> and his uh, favorite tool is the hammer. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 All 
Right on. So, Matt, could you talk a little bit about uh, Flames Rising, your uh, website? Certainly. Yeah, it's been a while since I was on the show, so I don't know if everybody remembers what we talked about before. Uh, Flames Rising is a webzine that covers horror as a genre, so we cover um, games, books, movies, comics, fiction. Uh, We post reviews of products, we interview creators, uh, sometimes we do previews and exclusive material. Um, Several years ago for White Wolf, we did a, a free... World of Darkness SAS that you can still get on the site. It was for Devil's Night. So you can um, check that out as a free one scene on the site. Um, and then we, of course, promote pro- cool products that we think our, our fans will like. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, we started publishing as well. We do a little fiction and a little RPG material each year. Um, Haunted, the book that we're going to give away, is our most popular product, but we've got some new stuff in the works. Um, several of them by uh, White Wolf freelancers, so there'll be some nice crossover there. Excellent. Very good. Cool. Well, I think that's it for the uh, Q&A thus far, so with that, I think we should move on over to the Secret Frequency. It's under the stairs. Tonight's Secret Frequency was submitted to us by San Chigger. Thanks, Chig. It's something I've been tangentially aware of, but uh, didn't have an idea of how deep the roots reached until he actually pointed it out to me. So let's just dive right in. Tonight we're, of course, discussing the Santa Muerta, which uh, translates from Spanish to either Saint Death or Holy Death. Uh, This is a holy figure that takes the image of a skeletal woman clad in a robe and holding either a scale or a scythe. And despite its similarities to the Grim Reaper, it's, uh, the Grim Reaper is actually based off of uh, Baltic and Polish myth, uh, where the Santa Muerta is a kind of synthesis of biblical stories and uh, Mesoamerican folklore. Uh, it is, in fact, uh, made holy by consensus and popular belief, and not only represents death, but uh, it's actually a patron for many different... Uh, segments of society, including the poor, police, drug runners, prostitutes, and uh, transgenders. And yet, uh, the Santa Muerta is considered to be a heretical religious figure, and it's dismissed by uh, the Catholic Church in Mexico as paganism. But regardless of that, uh, the poor cling to the Santa Muerta uh, in spite of its, uh, you know, the dominant Catholic faith. Uh, the figure is actually worshipped by millions throughout Mexico, Central America, and the southwestern United States. Uh, it's actually kind of growing. Uh, in fact, you can find uh, in New York City and uh, in Chicago, there are some small little shrines to it found in uh, poorer parts of the city. And actually, a lot of these worshippers believe that the saint is in fact part of uh, Christian mythology. And it's gotten so bad that uh, even some, uh, some Catholic and Protestant churches believe and preach that Santa Muerta is part of a black magic cult uh, and it's masquerading under a kind of pseudo-Christian doctrine. So how can we take this, uh, this figure, this iconography, and use it in the world of darkness? Well, let's uh, look at the most recent World of Darkness game, which is Mummy the Curse uh, for the new World of Darkness. 
in Mummy the Curse, you could just say that it's one of the Deathless, it's one of the mummies, and he has a cult around him, but that's a little bit dull. So let's make it more interesting. Perhaps the uh, player characters, who are themselves uh, the Deathless, are awakened with a task to, uh, to destroy the Santa Muerta cult locally. As they investigate, they find out that, uh, in fact, one of the lifeless, one of the uh, sort of um, false mummies, has created this cult around him, and that's who they uh, eventually destroy. But their task isn't over yet. As they find out, there's many of these lifeless, all maintaining these small cults, this network of cults, and all of them are posing as Santa Muerta. Uh, another idea is in uh, Vampire the Requiem. Um, when you look at uh, the concept of the Santa Muerta, you can see these different groups, uh, like, for example, the poor and the, uh, and the police, are in some ways, in, in many cases, are diametrically opposed or, or don't perhaps get along. And yet they both use the same figure as uh, their patron saint. So maybe uh, you could use this as inspiration in Vampire the Requiem to look at uh, perhaps the Circle of the Crone and the Lankea Sanctum. Maybe both of them are uh, preaching... Um, very different concepts regarding maybe the Virgin Mary from uh, Christianity and what kind of debates or violence could grow out of that. In Wraith, um, perhaps Santa Muerta actually does exist. It, it's a real um, being. Maybe it's an enigmatic female ferryman who reaps newly created wraiths uh, who come out of poor and disenfranchised neighborhoods and then uh, whisks them off to safety. Now, what if your characters are a group of legionnaires, and if they could find where these enfants are taken, they could be hugely rewarded. So, guys, uh, what do you think? What kind of ideas do you have regarding Santa Muerta? Definitely um, uh, some cult potential here. Um, mm -hmm. uh, either a religion or a, a cult group that actually protects people. So you could have uh, a group of hunters that use uh, her as their patron and uh, help each other out and help out uh, taxi drivers and uh, um, you know working class type people or uh, there could be a cult that uses this I icon or a creature that actually identifies itself as the uh, lady of the night building a cult of worshippers to cover up activities and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I was going to go with a few things. Uh, first of all, uh, you could use it as a concept for a geist, for Geistersenitas, so it's actually the Santa Muerta actually is bound to a Sinita. Um, you could also use it as the um, as the kind of... Uh, it could be a legacy... Um, a legacy, I'm trying to think of the term that they're using, Geist, uh, a legacy conspiracy, is that the right term? Um, a mythology, you know, that they've built up over time, and so various uh, Sinita groups have used it over time as a way of, of uh, having this uh, long-lasting mythology uh, that they use uh, for their rituals and rites, and, uh, and they have mementos based on it. Um, the other thing you could go with, you could actually use it as an inspiration for a uh, an entitlement for Changeling the Lost. Uh, so again, it could be an entitlement linked specifically with the with the uh, Court of Winter, 
considering they're the court of death and mourning and things that have been lost. And if you look again at the patronage, you could possibly even put into all that patronage uh, the, a lot of the lost may fall into being involved with those groups or in some way related to them. Um, it could also be inspiration, I guess, for the Hollow Ones for Mage the Ascension, so it could be the basis of a particular type of paradigm that this group of um, you know, South American Hollow One Mages make use of, uh, using again the rituals to create the right correspondences for their power. Um, for Masquerade, she could easily be a Semedi or a Cappadocian. Yes. Uh, again, uh, working on the Vampire the Requiem thing, as you said, Mike, you can actually build up a uh, an entire creed, a version. Uh, maybe it's considered um, considered a fusion of the Lancaster Sanctum and the Circle of the Crone to create a new creed, which is considered a blasphemy of the uh, Testament of Longinus. And so the Santa Murata could actually be a uh, uh, a symbolic effigy of uh, Longinus's mother, um, Lillian, is it Lillian? Livian, sorry. So it ties in with the Livian heresy. Um, and of course then you can, you can backfold that back in and you can make use of stuff from Vampire the Masquerade, uh, no, Vampire the Dark Ages, uh, which one I'm thinking, Ashen Cults, so you could possibly link it to a uh, Gnostic you gain some inspiration of where a Gnostic cult may have uh, sailed, sailed over the Atlantic and then found you know, the South American beliefs and merged with them and exist in the modern day and are hidden within possibly the, uh, the Sabbat, forming a sect within a sect. Um, ooh, one thing we've not thought about is werewolf maybe. Uh, possibly it's related to a a particular group of werewolves. I'm thinking werewolf the forsaken. Is it the I'm trying to think of the ones that are more likely to work with ghosts? But again, you can think of maybe a lodge that that actually Santa Moretta is a uh, spirit. Um, possibly even a city spirit that's related to Mexico City. Mm. Um, and that then brings us back to making use of the Mexico by night, oh no, Shadows Over Mexico, sorry, um, or Mexico by night, either if I think that's a book as well, I can't remember. Yeah, that's okay. Um, uh, have we forgotten anything else in our list of World of Darkness games? <laughs> yes, you did. So I mentioned in my little spiel here that, uh, of course, Santa Muerta is made holy by consensus. So, Age of the Ascension, mm. how is the technocracy yes. going to be uh, feeling about this? And what sort of... Uh, perhaps powers or or um, extraordinary abilities may be granted by worship of Santa Muerta. Mm. And what tradition mages are going to be trying to defend it? Yes. You could even imagine there might be even be a few technocracy, uh, maybe NWO or various agents that still pay at lip service. Um, that'd be really cool. Mm. Um, yes. And then, of course, the, the of course, as you could link it to uh, Aztec Mayan mummies of Mummy the Resurrection, and you could possibly use that as inspiration that this is another type of mummy cult that 
is of different mummies which are not linked to the original Egypt in Mummy the Curse. So an entire base. And in fact, I you could link it to something I wrote in our fanzine, which is the uh, the the road to Shabalba, which is the Mayan underworld. So maybe this is linked to the gods of Shabalba, uh, the as I say this underworld. Uh, so yes, yeah, Santa Marisa could be a um, one of the Caraboy uh, uh, of Geist and commands the domain. Yeah, I think we're done. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, I think so. I'm uh, a bit spent. Uh, one thing you can do, which is I always kind of like doing this, is you have that sort of mystery linking, uh, for example, like how is the Grim Reaper, this skeletal figure in a robe with a scythe, appear in Poland, but then you mm -hmm. also have Santa Muerta appearing in Mexico when okay, there's yeah. not too much link between them. Uh, another sure. thing you do, this is tying back to Darker Days Radio episode number 14, where uh, they're talking about Black Vaughn. Chris, you're the one who submitted that secret yeah. frequency. Um, Mark went into this little tangent about uh, great cats and also mentioned uh, rumors of great cats in Glastonbury, England. Now, of course, there really aren't any large cats there. Um, however, I originally grew up in a little place called Glastonbury, Connecticut, the one other Glastonbury, and there are indeed uh, mountain lions and bobcats in Connecticut. So what if the two Glastonburys are linked. So you kind of like, uh, it could be a, uh, it's parallel mythology which is a remnant of something older. Uh, yeah. It also, that actually, that links to something else because obviously Santa Maria is meant to be the eighth archangel. So you can link that to the god machine, so it could be a, uh, it could be a manifestation of a particular way that the god machine manipulates people. Uh, or it could be a fallen angel, in which case it's acting against the god machine and ties into Demon the Triple X, which we will be seeing later in the year. Um, yeah. <laughs> right on. Matt, you got anything else? Um, she reminds me a little bit of uh, the Capuchin from the Giovanni Chronicles. So she could easily be a harbinger of skulls. Mm. That's true, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, she really does have that, that particular image as well. It's very good, very good. Cool. So I think that's it for uh, the secret frequency. And uh, Matt, are you going to bow out now? I am indeed. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, thank it's you very great. much. Thank you very much. And with that, let's move on over to the classic world of darkness. Classic world of darkness. So today, for uh, looking at the classic World of Darkness, I figured we'd kind of do a bit of a retrospective on Vampire 20th, since uh, our next segment after this is going to be talking about the God Machine Chronicles. So, you know, we got this new new system, a new setting, really, for, for mm -hmm. a new World of Darkness. So why don't we go back and take a look at what they've been doing so far with the first sort of reboot for the mm -hmm. classic World of Darkness. So, of course, Vampire the Masquerade was the first White Wolf World of Darkness storytelling game released back in 1991. And uh, it was a really big deal when they announced that V20 was going to come out and they're going to mm. bring back Vampire um, the Masquerade. Uh, Chris, you definitely uh, probably remember when uh, we had Gehenna Heretic on the show to talk about uh, the Vampire Translation Guide, which is the product yes. that that links together Vampire the Masquerade and Vampire the Requiem, kind of gives you a way to uh, transfer rules from one to the other. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was back in Darkling number 16, and we're not really going to talk about that right here because 
we really covered it quite a bit. So definitely <laughs> check out that episode if you want to review that. Uh, the other thing they released as an April Fool's joke was Paths of Storytelling Vampire, which is kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. You can do either oh, yeah, yeah. Gangrel Clan, Malkavian Clan, or Toreador. I've only ever done Gangrel, and I kind of wanted to cry. <laughs> so that's when V20 came out. It came out over the summer of uh, 2011. And um, Mark and I did briefly talk about this back in Darker Days number 30. Um, but let's let's kind of go through it again, just as a kind of like a quick overview. So okay. V20 is giant. It's, you know, 500 pages long. Uh, Chris, do you have a copy of it? I have a copy, yes. I perfect, have. perfect. I just wanted to make sure that you uh, actually know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I've read through it and I say I, I say I've read as in large portions of it I kind of skipped through because I it, it's it's so close to it, it's an it's an iteration really in some yes. respects on Vampire the Masquerade revised and yeah. that's where I got started and that's precisely what I was going to talk about um, it's really it's a big resource that kind of compiles all this uh, previous information so you've got basically they took the core rulebook the Vampire Revised Core Rulebook. And they put in some information from uh, Guide to the Sabbat, Guide to the Camarilla, mm-hmm. uh, Guide to the Anarchs, and then all these different bloodlines as well. And just got all the rules in there. And it's really just in one place. That's what you're kind of getting with this book, is you're getting this rules compilation of all the, the main information that's good. Yeah, it's pretty much everything you would ever need to run uh, Vampire the Masquerade because I yep. happily ran Vampire the Masquerade with just the core book and Guide to the Sabbat and Guide to the Camarilla. So, yeah, it's it's kind of the, the same thing. Um, now, I think one of the rules-wise, really nothing, They they their aim was never to change the rules. It was trying to deliver exactly the same... Uh, experience that right. revised was but they did tweak one or two things yeah precisely they, they did change a couple of things and it was mostly because the rule was stupid or just didn't matter <laughs> like a flaw that wasn't really a flaw um dodge oh they also changed dodge because that yeah. was just kind of a point sink anyway but yeah. they, they'd actually made that ruling in orpheus before exactly yeah. so it was like okay this worked we should just probably put it in um yeah so i mean they changed like the tremere flaw they changed how initiative works that was pretty simple and um they also fixed up some of the sillier bloodline powers as well so um mm. nothing that's gonna really break your game oh they changed celerity as well and a lot of people complained about that, oh yeah whatever again not really anything that's gonna break your game um but really just kind of obviously obviously this was not optimal when it first came out so like clearly we should just fix it up a little bit but yeah, yeah. it's still the really the same core experience and it's the same system that they've basically been using since you know 1991 and much like uh, how the releases for mage the ascension are going uh v20 and all the releases after that um have essentially just assumed that the events of gehenna never took place or you can have the events of gehenna push back beyond when they were originally uh, dated to happen within the meta plot. So that means then they've opened up the scope for in, for looking at how the society and vampires of Vampire the Masquerade have ch- would change and evolve with the things that have happened since Vampire the Masquerade originally ended. 
Mm-hmm, exactly. And that actually is a pretty important part to uh, one of the books we're going to be talking about in just a minute. But uh, okay. finishing up with V20, um, I guess the other things just to bring up with it uh, in this kind of broad overview is that, yeah, while it has all the clans and bloodlines, it doesn't have anything about the Kindred of the East, which is mm-hmm. understandable because they're not actually vampires. They're yeah. they're basically they're risen from uh, Wraith the Oblivion, actually. Yeah. Um, the, the core book for Kindred of the East actually says that as well, which is pretty cool. So they straight up said that. Additionally, there's no Liabon legacies. That's the African vampires. Mm-hmm. And they are they are kindred, basically. They just have uh, some slightly different mechanics. So I was a little curious that they did not include them when they included all the bloodlines mm-hmm. as well. I don't know. Maybe we'll see that in the future. It's definitely, it was one of the last few books that they came out with. I think it came out in 2003, um, yeah. right before the end, or <laughs> temporary end, if you will. So uh, it's definitely not too outdated in respect to uh, Vampire the Masquerade. So uh, the old book is probably okay. One joke we Vitesse players make is that more people playing Vitesse have used Liabon than people actually playing Vampire the Masquerade. Because <laughs> the book came out so late and it's kind of a an area that a lot of people I don't think explore in their World of Darkness games, which is Africa. Yeah. I think that's why that book is interesting for us to look at in future with relation to what we can learn for uh, Requiem, really. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, is that all to say about the the main V20 book? and Or is there anything else that you should highlight about it? Because um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but I've had, I'm being buried in God Machine Chronicles and other stuff. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that basically is it. Uh, okay. I mean, the only thing that they didn't change, which I kind of wish they had changed, was merits and flaws. They're oh, still yeah, obviously yeah. an optional system, but they just copy-pasted them from other books and... Sure, okay. I don't like them as they were, so... No. Uh, it, you can definitely just leave those and not use them in your game, and that's perfectly valid, so... Okay. Oh, whatever. So, after V20, which was the next book they released then? Well, they came out with their their giant, like, kind of... I almost want to call it a supersized SAS, which was uh, was Dust to Dust. Okay. While it is a, uh, a one-shot adventure... Matt McFarland wrote it, and he put enough options to really expand it so you could make it into a couple-session chronicle if you wanted to, or a couple-session story. Um, and what that does is it takes the uh, location of Gary, Indiana, which was in the Vampire First Edition core book, uh, and also the Ashes to Ashes adventure okay, module yeah. from way back in, like, 1992. It takes that and kind of updates the setting, uh, shows that Gary is an awful, awful place nowadays, and um, provides uh, a look into the very limited kindred politics that still exists there, and then also has some uh, zombie horror action going on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that's about all I can say uh, regarding that. I mean, obviously, it's an adventure, so you have to go and play it. Uh, that might be a good one to actually uh, run for a Google Hangout sometime. I'll have to think okay. about that. But after that, of course, is the V20 Companion. This was... Uh, I think, yeah, this was the first Kickstarter book ever for Onyx Path. Um, so, obviously, it was uh, pretty pretty well-received, I think. Uh, a little short. I know some people were complaining about that, but, you know, whatever. Uh, I like to call V20 Companion either Gilded Cage 2.0 okay. or The Book of Nipples. Ah. Gilded Cage was a really, really great book for Vampire the Masquerade, and I... 
uh, I refer to it a lot when I was starting out with Vampire the Rat Queen, just because it, it's all about elders and how they do stuff, and and uh, that's really useful. So um, yeah, how does V Twenty Companion work then? Like, what's the standout stuff in there? Yeah, there's basically four sections. Um, the first one is talking about titles, okay. like vampire status titles and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, the next is talking about uh, kind of the games of uh, prestation and yeah. like the politics they play and boons then, and favors and trade and the horse trading precisely precisely and then there's also um a little section on kindred and technology okay and then there's some uh kind of locations that may be of interest uh in your game so uh the title section is kind of cool but also i feel didn't use its space very well because mm-hmm. it's describing to you things like the prince and you know, an archbishop and the sabbat and that kind of stuff which are all titles that are described in the uh, V20 core book, and it in fact tells you the page numbers of those, so you can check them out for more information. But obviously that's not really stuff you had to review. Didn't really need that explained to me again. But there's also some really cool titles in here, like there's some uh, titles for the Talmahera, who are the uh, kind of weird Gehenna cult sect that live in the Shadowlands. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also two titles for the Inkanu, which are the Monitor and the uh, Equite. So that's kind of cool to see uh, them expanding their uh, the purview of Vampire. And that's actually, just as a side comment, this is kind of, a, I think, a core theme to what they're doing now. Actually, we'll cover that later. We'll cover that later. Okay. Um, and then uh, if you move on over to the uh, Prestation section, uh, this is great. This is really, it's basically taking what you find in Gilded Cage and then distills it down to really the core concepts and uses the word count very well. And it's really great because it actually... You also get uh, a lot of discussion about the Sabbat and how okay. boons and, and the horse training basically works with them. Uh, Anarchs as well, uh, Talmahera, the Ankanu, and even uh, independent vampires, and how uh, they all kind of interact with each other in the uh, in the eternal struggle. Okay, cool. Well, that's good to see that. Like, I think I never really had a sense of how you know how the Sabbat's way of trading favors and prestation would work so um, yeah it's not in the guide to the spot i mean there's not Mm. too much about their politics there so that's why it's great that this book finally kind of sat down and said like hey wait how would this actually work okay cool yep yeah kindred and technology it's kind of a basic overview it didn't get too much into the details i think because they don't want it to be to feel outdated in five years when we have you know google glass and all that (laughs) and then uh the locations um this actually kind of felt the location section was a little weird and kind of shoehorned in because the rest of this is about, you know, kindred society. And then we just have a list of different places where they hang out. Um, mm. So, I mean, they mentioned Paveglia, which is a, a secret frequency back in the day. I think that was on Darker Days Radio episode number 11 with Malcolm Shepard. Yep, yeah. that was it. Uh, another cool one is uh, Dr. Netchurch's laboratory in Lowell, Massachusetts, which is, you know, a half hour away from me, that city. Okay. Um, I'm not sure why he'd be hanging out in Lowell. That place kind of sucks. <laughs> okay. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically what the V20 companion is. It's it's mostly about kindred society, except for the locations part. Hmm. And then... Uh, Next up, there was Children of the Revolution, um, 
which I have not read too extensively. I basically just checked out that one uh, Cappadocian character that, that Steve had been talking about, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. this is awesome. <laughs> so what this book does, it's it's kind of like uh, Kindred Most Wanted, which Matt was just discussing. Um, it's also kind of like Children of the Night and Children of the Inquisition, which are they're basically just NPC books. They have a lot of information, a lot of background on a couple of particular NPCs. I think uh, Children of the Revolution is kind of interesting, though, because it doesn't focus on like these major power players. It just makes up a bunch of awesome vampires that you're like, yeah, I'd kind of like to put that guy in my game. Yeah. You know, like okay. Kick-ass Cappadocian, that kind of stuff. So uh, that's really all I have to say about that. Got any questions on it? Not really. I mean, NPC books are kind of one of these, uh, are a resource which I guess, you know, you kind of flick through and... Um... Like yeah, it's the same with like in New Order Darkness. Like you get a lot of the city setting books. I don't particularly run any of the particular any of the pre the pre written city setting books. But it doesn't mean the NPCs and they're useless. You know, they easily if there's someone that's interesting, you just dump them into your own chronicle if you can. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right on. And then of course uh, coming up real soon because uh, I think yeah. I got the got the voucher for it is a uh, Hunter's Hunted 2.0. Mm. Yeah, I think I've oh, complained about really this. Interesting. I think I complained about this book many times. Uh, not really complained about it, but I mean, uh, I didn't. I wasn't a huge fan of Hunters Hundred One. So actually, I'm going to be excited to see how they improve since that <laughs> 1992 source book. And uh, yeah, I mean, Mortal Hunters are definitely a, they're a core feature of, of Vampire the Masquerade, and they were when the book first came out in 1991, like the Vampire First Edition. It was obvious yeah. that there were options, and uh, definitely. Hunters were going to be a huge antagonist, so it's really an important book. But again, it's it's really just retreading something they've already done before. Mm. And I think that's a really important thing to to think about with this retrospective is like, you know, we see uh, Justin Achille uh, developing a couple books and uh, uh, Eddie Webb as well, and we kind of have to wonder like, are you guys, you know, breaking new ground with this, or are you kind of going over things we've already seen before? Because as it stands, uh, with the V20 Companion and uh, with uh, Hunters Hunted 2.0, they're covering mortals, they're covering kindred politics. Really things we've seen before, but they do luckily add in some new, more modern spins to them and provide us with books which are, uh, I'd say, probably better thought out than yeah. the, uh, the books uh, from from previous editions. Another great thing I've noticed uh, with the last couple books is they're really bringing in more options for for sects and play. Okay. Um, so I'm saying that in Revised, you basically played the Camarilla or you played the Sabbat. Yeah. There was that one book for the Anarchs, but it didn't yeah. really make them all that interesting. And uh, it didn't provide you with too many options to make them different from the Cam. Yeah. So what they've brought in now is they brought in a lot of new fresh ideas for the Anarchs. They've also... They're describing the uh, the Talmahera quite a bit, which is interesting because in in the vampire canon, they've actually been blown up. Hmm. They were spirit nuked in the Shadowlands. Yeah. And we've also got just a little bit, a couple of little inklings about the Inkanu, which makes them maybe not playable, but um, gives you a lot more ideas for how they can be used in your game, all the mysteries surrounding them. It feels like, it, I mean, it looks like by, you know, <laughs> by having this kind of like reboot of a sort and, you know, removing Gehenna and the fact they've had all these other games, you know, the New Order Darkness, you know, kind of 
churning along and uh, you know kind of keeping things alive in some respects for the company they, they've got this new freedom to really explore things that in the past they wouldn't do because of how the metaplot may have channeled them down to this end game that they had to eventually you know lay out the cards for and it, it feels like with these sets it's, it's getting some of the feel some of the the things that were interesting about the Dark Ages setting, where you had like the uh, Prometheans and you had, you know, the various different churches and cults and and uh, and heresies, and to to have again these smaller groups and or, or, and that could be part of or or not within the the main Sabbat and Camarilla really, I think, adds some diversity to the setting, which for me makes it worth looking at again. Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at Vampire Revised, they had a lot of little secret societies and factions, but they're always like distinctly within one sect. And now what they're doing is they're bringing in a lot more options for interplay between sects and and having these little groups that are, as you mentioned, kind of outside the norm. Mm-hmm which is definitely very appreciated. I think another important thing to do is kind of look at uh, some of the upcoming books to see if those are kind of treading new ground. So what mm-hmm. we do have is uh, Blood Diaries of the Clans, which is a bunch of mini clan books. Obviously, they've covered uh, clans before with clan books quite extensively. So I'm excited to see how they're going to um, spice this up from what we've seen in the old clan books and, and what kind of new ideas they're going to present. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, what else have we got? So there's Rites of Blood, which is slated for November. Right, hmm. right. There's also that looks cool. That one, and we were discussing that a little bit um, when the schedule first came out, and I'm pretty excited for it because it's going to include uh, some blood magic and thaumaturgy for like the Talmahera, for example. And we mm-hmm. never got any of that kind of information before. Well. Scratch that. We got biothaumaturgy in Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand, which is just kind of weird and silly. Yeah. Um, sorry. Though, in an earlier release, we still got, we've got Anarchs Unbound, which is a revisit of the Anarch uh, cookbook. And yeah. So again, I I can definitely see that as really revisiting those concepts, but maybe making it more informative and and a more mature kind of product than the original one yeah exactly i think that's one of the uh, important things about the the v20 lines they're really when they aren't breaking new brown new ground they're looking at these books and these concepts and just kind of updating them and making them you know up, uh, improved for our modern sensibilities how about that yes because i think i think this is one of the things as much as people may not like vampire the requiem it's allowed writers to explore what vampires are and explore kind of different political uh settings for vampires and that then obviously has a feedback loop into when you look at vampire the master and you go yeah maybe we didn't write about the Anarchs or write about all these secret societies in a way that did justice back in the day. So, you know, people learn things and they realize how to, to make uh, a group more interesting or or at least make a product better. Cool. Yeah, I think that's really the final verdict, Chris. When I look at these, these uh, V20 books as they come out, you know, yeah. I get them and I'm not too excited about the concept, but then I open them up and I'm always pleasantly surprised. Okay. 
so there we go i think that's all i got to say uh regarding v20 and with that let's let's go over to the new world of darkness and talk about the god machine chronicle world of darkness 2.0 mm-hmm. okay so yeah god machine chronicle how long how many weeks has that been out now it's like a, a week maybe a two bit weeks, more something like that. two weeks oh wow. i haven't okay. even downloaded it yet oh jeez I'm so Chris you gotta, you gotta lead the way with this okay hold on I, so I've been trying to write my review for it so obviously you know it's been nine years since uh you know White Wolf did the big reboot um the really big reboot and you know they brought out two particular books and one of them was a blue book and one of them was red book and the blue book was quite significant because it represented quite a departure um in old world of darkness you would have the the main core rules of world of darkness reprinted for your particular setting what we have here though is a core book which would use to represent mortals and stories involving mortals and the supernatural and paranormal and then of course you would get the appropriate splat book the setting book which would add on the template for those supernatural creatures so, of course, the World of Darkness core book, as, it, as it's known, kind of got the moniker of being known as the Blue Book. And, yeah, it's been nine years. And when you think about quite a few roleplay games out there, in that amount of time, you could possibly sometimes get a, a revised edition or, or even two completely new editions with, uh, with updates to the rules. So I think that, if anything, that gives a good sign of how in some respects, robust the new World of Darkness rules are. Mm, I don't know, Chris. <clears throat> I'm going I'm to say this straight up. Um, okay. Especially now that we have the God Mission Chronicle. Yes. When you look back, this, this is something I've been thinking about regarding the World of Darkness for a long time. When you look back at the storyteller system, you know, the 1991 Vampire the Masquerade game, when it first came out, it was huge because it told you to play story games. Yeah. It didn't actually give you mechanics to play story games really well. It just gave you, you know, attributes and skills, which was a, a pretty pretty basic uh, game structure that had been around for a while. But it told you to play stories. It's It gave you um, used words like, this is a session, this is a story, oh, this yeah, is yeah, a chronicle, yeah. and that sort of thing. And when the New World of Darkness came out, they they fixed up that system mechanically with, like, the dice rolling, but they did not really advance further to make the world of darkness framework framework be uh, made for story games. And now with this, we've really advanced quite a bit. This is, this yeah, is a huge okay. leap, I feel. Well, when I say robust, I, mean, I meant really more in the sense of how um, the system accommodated all the different splats they've brought out and how you could... You could basically uh, bring in something new, and the the basis of the rules worked well for every generally everything that there was because you had the mortal game gave you a base system to work from, which was common to all of them, so you could get the right kind of balance and flow of the game because you had everything derived from the same thing, um, because everything has the same rules for spirits and the same rules for ghosts and the same rules for demons. And oh. so that's where I, I talk about robustness is that, that if you introduce a new splat thing, it doesn't really, you could, you could do the crossovers and it didn't really break too much. Oh, well, well, in that case, I agree 100%. But yes, you know, we have come on. The, the, the God Machine Chronicles really does represent 
some significant changes. Like a, if you had story, what did we have? I had storyteller system, the storytelling system mm-hmm. to, uh, for classic world dramas to new world dramas. And the changes were really, what was the main significant changes? Merits of flaws disappearing, uh, you know, combat being streamlined to a single role. Um, you know, that was the main changes really there. And, you know, God Machine Chronicles does give us a significant move towards something that is more, I would say, a a more collaborative way of telling stories with mechanical nudges to make players think more about the story they want to tell with their characters rather than playing in a way where it is the players versus the storyteller. Now it is you as a group of people trying to tell a story which will scare you together. Yeah. Because there's, there's, there's now a bit of a buying uh, into doing why you want to do certain actions. Because, um, But I'll get into that a bit more because that's the, the last part of the book. So the God Machine Chronicle is called that because obviously it builds off the concept of the God Machine which was introduced in the World of Darkness core book. Uh, it's this idea of this cosmic force entity that works in the background, nudging, pushing humanity with strange, uh, strange actions, strange uh, creatures uh, for its own uh, occult and largely unknown uh, purpose. And it all has it has crossovers with vampire to do with you know spirits of uh, that could talk to. To humans and vampires via um, the radio, and there's this whole thing about uh, how eventually, you know, things like the lunar missions to the to the moon were to actually recover uh, an angel, um, uh, one of these entities that works for the god machine, and you know, there's a whole run up of events that uh, leads to this this climax of recovering this entity, and uh, and then how it is working in the modern world. Um, so I think you can basically look at the God Machine and kind of like it has similarities to kind of the the large global conspiracies that you see within, say, the X-Files or Millennium, Fringe, uh, maybe even Lost to a certain extent. And um, and obviously it kind of has a, a feeling of kind of like Cthulhu without, without the tentacles. Um, so, yeah, Mike, what do you think about the concept of the God Machine and... Uh, in that sense, I, I mean, what's being revealed now, and what you what you may have have read elsewhere, and this idea of a cos of this cosmic horror. I think it's definitely much needed because uh, New World of Darkness became far more Lovecraftian. I'd say. I mean, there was definitely yeah. elements of that in the old World of Darkness, but I think the the core mortals setting was very much into that, and I'm most excited to actually see how this is going to play in with. Uh, Demon the triple question mark, mm-hmm. and and what we're going to see with that. So yeah, I mean the whole as I said, the whole point of God Machine is we get an insight into the machinations of this, this cosmic horror that slowly maneuvers the world for its own kind of purpose, and we get insight into its agents, you know, humans that are part of cults that work for it, or humans that have been corrupted and are kind of or, or, or machine type creatures, and of course it's angels which are summoned into the world. Of course the angel being a broad term here, the angel the angel being used in the sense that it is an entity working for the god machine summoned from its realm what's interesting is we that 
we get a few things also with the zone. We get introduced a fourth tier to the game, which is cosmic scale. So you 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 play a chronicle where each story that you're playing out could be the the the, the characters versus the the god machine. And you could be winning very local things. So, you know, you stopped it from harming your town. But the god machine will mostly try and do the same plan to some other town. But your characters don't worry about that because they're all about the local problems. And then, of course, you've got more city or national scale kind of issues. So you could be like a, a group of people investigating these these incidences uh, across, you know, the, across Europe and, you know, thwarting the actions of the god machine and then of course you've got cosmic scale so you could actually thwart the god machine and cause changes to the world and to reality so you could literally change time or change the nature of reality um and that's really interesting because i think that gives some insight into possibly what we could we could see from a uh, mage the awakening chronicle mm-hmm. um so, you know, of course, we've got these ideas of tears and we've got these ideas of what the God Machine could be. Uh, the important thing is we don't actually get told what the God Machine is. We get ideas of what the God Machine could be. So it could be a God. It could be the world awakened, you know, kind of like that Gaia complex. Or it could actually be an intrusion from another dimension in a kind of a, a classic kind of alien sense. Um, so there's numerous ideas you can go with and you can make it fit uh, what you want. But the main themes of moves is this, like this cosmic force, which is using humanity in the world to its own ends. And the fact is that you are people that can see these cogs turning, be they literal cogs or metaphorical. And to support these this, these chronicles, we get a, uh, a whole list of kind of like how we would build uh, your group. So we get... And I, we get really uh, the ideas of what a group template is. Um, so that's ex- that's expanded upon. And we also get to learn about uh, how we can introduce the God Machine into our game. So we, we look at like how they, the God Machine has infrastructures. Infrastructures are ways that it can, can manipulate, gather, nurture, create, and hide its plans. And so then based on that idea of these infrastructures, we get given 20 or so kind of example stories. So imagine these as like a SAS written in the space of about five paragraphs. And so you get basically story seeds. And these story seeds have uh, examples of how you, what type of characters would be involved in them and why they would get involved in them, how the story should generally kind of maybe play out and also what the results would be, good or bad, and how it could lead into further stories. So if the players kind of fail, how would that, what would be the next step of the God Machine's plan? Perfect. Or if they succeed, what the God Machine would do instead? Or how would it fight back? And that's really cool. Yeah. Chris, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, with an SAS, you have five or three or four paragraphs for a scene. Instead, you have yeah. three or four paragraphs for a story and yeah. does it actually tell you how to connect these stories from one oh, to yes. the other it to make has, the entire chronicle it has examples of uh, of uh, tracks and these basically list a series of these uh, a number of the 20 or so stories and it links them together it shows you how to link them together and what the ideal player group should be to interact with that story so it may go well they should all be 
involved in law enforcement, or they should all be like people that live on the same block in the same town. It even suggests that some of them, it may be better to play where at each story, the players are playing different characters. So each story is a new group of characters, but you're playing through stories that the players know are linked together to create a, a grander chronicle. And that's really cool. Um, is there anything more I can say on that? So, I mean, I think that's that's the general gist of it. I mean, there's a lot there to to take in and read and absorb. Of course, they give you a whole host of NPCs like uh, strange creatures, people, uh, and uh, and these angels that can be summoned in. They give you ideas of cults that could be working in the background and working for the god machine they also give you lots of uh, of readable resources so these are like uh, the, the the crazy writings of some researcher and and how you could basically have the players their characters come across these and, and learn more about what the god machine is i think the nice thing about the god machine as well is how it really the thing that it, it ties into and this is i think a very kind of uh, Post, post-millennium, post-modern, post-millennium thing is that, and we get this in the God Machine anthology. Uh, Mike, have you read the short story where there's a guy talking to a researcher at university, and he's like a, he's a, um, he's a cleaner at the university, and he's looking at the blackboard. And it has like uh, the the plots of subatomic particles and where they're moving, but it's actually almost a mandala which gives you insight into what the god machine is. So there's this idea of like, you know, modern science and modern technology is getting closer and closer to the point where we will dis- where we may be breaching the veil and discovering what the god machine is and how it interacts with that. Um, so I really like that obviously due to my field of my own work. So um that's something I may well use for for my own chronicles. Um, yeah, that's basically what I can say about the God Machine itself. Obviously, there's loads of stuff that would be perfect for Hunter the Vigil. I think we can now talk about rules. Sure. Um, okay, so the rules have undergone a lot of changes. Uh, the main changes take place in the morality system, the combat system, experience and the introduction of the concept of conditions and tilts so for humans morality is gone and it's replaced by something called integrity the old version of morality was based on the victorian concept that madness was linked to moral degradation so you know if you do crime and you you vandalize things you steal things you you harm people and you murder people you will become more insane um, and you will gain derangements. That's gone because that's just not really what it is. What we now have is a system called integrity, which, as David Hill kind of described, is representative of kind of uh, post-traumatic stress. And so how, we, how humans respond to things that stress us out. And, of course, these things will stress us out depending upon what our morality is. So, obviously, a a cynical, seasoned, hard-nosed cop is going to be less shocked by certain things than, say, a college grad. And so in that respect, it kind of is, it brings it closer, I would say, to maybe a bit more kind of like how insanity works in Cthulhu. 
in Cthulhu type games. So obviously it, it opens up the idea that, you know, breaking points will be your character thinks that theft is bad. So obviously if you commit grand grand theft auto, you will have a breaking point that will cause you a degradation of your integrity. Um but say uh, all characters, no matter what their morality is, will have a breaking point. So, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, breaking points represent things that cause you to cause stress on your integrity. So, everyone's breaking points is murdering people or massacres or even witnessing horrors of some form and the supernatural. Um, and of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will also get a derangement if you drop in integrity because it's just not representative um all the time uh so yeah mike how do you what do you think about that i mean you've read a bit bit about this also with relation to what they're planning to do for the equivalent for humanity for uh in blood and smoke yeah actually while you were talking uh regarding the uh the old victorian morality i was thinking like yeah they should probably link it to stress and then you say Yes, yeah, so they kind of linked it to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I was like, all right, perfect, perfect. Yeah, it seems like it's uh, a lot more reasonable uh, for um, the uh, the growth or uh, uh, inhibition of, of derangements. Yeah, so I definitely think it's a good change. Uh, I do like breaking points quite a bit because uh, they provide a lot more role-playing opportunities rather than just a, like, boo, I scared you, make a morality roll, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the I mean, I already did that to an extent with the way the morali uh, morality and humanity systems were set up. So obviously, if you witness something that was ridiculously, you know, crazy and horrific, you would have a degeneration because it just breaks your mind. I think this is better because obviously it represents how different people respond in different ways, and players are then have to write up just a quick kind of five breaking points based upon like what's the worst thing they've ever done in their life what's the worst thing they've ever witnessed what's the worst thing they can imagine ever doing um and it means then that you have a you can then f f people have the play the player characters have their own uh their own response and their responses can be slightly different to a particular situation <clears throat> Okay, um, so the next thing to bring us on to is combat. I will talk about combat's quite cool. Um, they've changed things up. Uh, I would say signif significantly. There, uh, combat is pretty much the same. You know, you get a dice pool that is then modified by your equipment, but they've now made it so that a weapon that is very you know how basically if you wanted to deal more damage and be more likely to hit you may as well just use a chainsaw uh, compared to a club and that really didn't feel right because it just meant the person with the baddest weapon was going to hit more mm -hmm. so the way that's been changed up is kind of twofold you've got um, weapons now have a modifier to initiative and certain attacks have a modifier to initiative so you can imagine that big hefty weapons are more clumsy and slower to use so the person with the knife may not deal as much damage but obviously is going to act quicker and i think that's quite a important change that represents the differences between weapons um i'm just going through my pdf here so i can cover most of the main points that's breaking points um 
the other thing is that, as always, you still have a uh, a defense rating, uh, which is not rolled. But if your character dodges, and you double your you double your defense rating, yeah, and you get spend a willpower point, you get an extra few dice on it. Mm-hmm. So the way that works now is if you don't dodge and you spend a willpower point, you get an extra plus two points onto your defense, as you do with any static resistance trait. If you dodge, you double your dodge, you spend any willpower you want to, and you roll that as an active pool with any successes, removing successes from the attacker's dice pool. Now you may go, well, hold on a minute, that means you still want to have the biggest, baddest weapon to hit someone, right? You want the thing that deals you know, five points of damage, yeah? yeah. Added onto your strength pool. Uh-uh-uh. When you roll combat, you roll to hit. If you, and that's, but your roll to hit does not include the modifier due to the weapon. Right. That yeah. is the extra damage that is dealt if you hit. Does that make sense then? Yes, So, So obviously, if you've got a knife, and you've got a melee a weaponry of like three and a strength of three. You roll six dice to hit. If you hit any of the successes plus the damage modifier of the knife is the actual damage you do. But of course, someone may do a dodge against you. So that's how that's working, and that's quite a significant change to combat. It makes it a bit more. It makes it a bit more active. It means people are maybe a bit more involved in in. Uh, thinking about what they would want to do and respond to a particular threat. Um, what do you think, Mike? I'm just going to look at some other things while you comment on that. Well, I was just uh, skimming through the uh, rules update, and one one new rule that I really like is uh, human shields. <laughs> yeah, We finally have a rule for that. They're actually not all that great, but uh, it's definitely an option if you ever want one. There's There's a couple of things in here which I was not expecting to see. There's that okay. um, auto-fire rules. I don't think we're in the World of Darkness blue book at all. Not that I think I've ever had World of Darkness characters with automatic no, I've weapons. No, I've never <laughs> had characters with automatic weapons. I think it was in there, but yeah, it, the amount of times it came up was never. Um, <laughs> right on. Um, the, I mean, the other things that are kind of interesting with it is, uh, let's think, obviously, I think the way they've changed the way that damage is done, I think it's more important now and more interesting with regard to uh, staking. You remember how difficult it was, was to stake a vampire? Extremely, you had to, because you had you, all those penalties. So you had a minus three to hit, because it was a cold shot to the chest, and you had to deal at least five points of damage. You're like, how the f*** am I going to do that? So now, of course, with a crossbow, a crossbow has a base strength of three. So you get the minus to hitting a particular a particular point, but then you get the three damage on top. So then suddenly it makes your dice pull, even if it's being modified by like minus three for the hit and other situational modifiers, you technically only need to get two successes, which is more reasonable. Whereas before I found I found it kind of sometimes it was really hit or miss with actually you know, you'd hit, but you wouldn't be dealing enough damage. Whereas now, you've got those three dice. What would have been three dice are now three definite damage. So if anything, combat could be considered a little bit more lethal. It means sometimes, it, it may mean people are more compelled to make use of dodge as a reaction 
rather than just using the static defense. Right. Um, and of course, the initiative modifier is quite interesting. Um, what can we say about initiative with that? Um, ooh, let's see. Uh, one of the things you've also got is beatdown. So obviously, um, this goes into the morale, uh, morality, you know, integrity of, of a fight. And so the idea that different people want different things out of a fight, and it gives you the chance to just that someone can surrender in a fight, depending upon what everyone wants. If so long as the, the intent of the fight on both sides isn't kill the other person, um, mm-hmm. so that's kind of useful. Um, what else can we say about initiative modifiers? Uh, yeah, that's that's the general gist of combat, and um, you know, I, I you know, I like it a lot. It makes it a bit more interesting. It has a few more options in there. Obviously, related to that is how combat merits and merits in general have been changed up. So all the merits are replaced, and we've got new combat merits that do not give us extra actions. So everyone still just gets one action. So. You know, none of that kind of craziness anymore. Um, and anything else? Uh, oh, important thing. All weapons deal lethal damage. So no matter what, it does lethal damage. Because whether you think it sounds like blunt force with a with a, a baseball bat, that still fucking hurts. And, you know, mm-hmm. could deal, deal proper, like, breaking of bones and so forth. Um... Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm going to talk now about, unless you want to say anything else about combat, Mike. Not particularly. Okay. So then I think one of the, the major things they've added it, and I think this makes it kind of similar to certain other kind of more story games out there, is conditions. And so this really comes into what I was talking about with combat and with integrity. So in combat, if you get hit in, say, the face, you get damaged there. You could take a, a, a combat-specific condition. Those are normally called tilts, such as you're blinded or disorientated. And so what that basically explains with relation to combat is they're, they're situational modifiers, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, in normal out-of-combat roleplay, you get conditions. So what that basically means is that, say you witness something horrific happening, you could take the condition that you are shocked, and so you have you know, you, your your um, your willpower is affected. And so, if you see something horrifying again, you may just run away, uh, or your your skill pool is is uh, you know modified in a uh, in a negative manner. You could also get positive conditions. So, obviously, uh, a particular uh, spell or drug or something may give you a condition which gives you a bonus. And then with conditions, which comes with that, is uh, you get certain extra things. You get something known as the resu- uh, a clause, which is its resolution. So it basically tells you, if this happens, this condition is ended. And then you get a the description of a beat, which we'll get back to. So, so conditions cover everything from physical problems, mental problems, social problems, and of course, the combat-specific tilts. Um, So, you know, they cover things like addicted, amnesiac, uh, 
de- sleep deprived, you know, embarrassing secret, guilt, lot that you, you you're lost, you're shaken, you're spooked, and you know you can make you can, and the list that's already in the book is about twenty or so, but of course you can make them up as you see fit for your game and for the characters. Um, so yeah, Mike, what do you think about that? Conditions, as you mentioned, are really big. Uh story driver now i feel mm-hmm. and yeah it's very easy for you to make your own i can't remember i think chris you might have mentioned this actually this mm-hmm. would have been a good question for matt while he was on we should get cards or something so you can just easily pass these out i've already game. hinted at this and i think there may be something in i'm hoping something in the works that you will have uh you know as conditions are created in the game in more books that we will just have them as a downloadable resource because yeah. you, know, you want them as something you could hand out to players as they get them because it's something easy to then track with. Um, now, the one thing to say about conditions is how they relate to, and as I say, conditions can be derangements. So let's talk about how conditions relate to things like dramatic failures and experience. So dramatic failures, Mike. How often did you have a dramatic failure occur in your game? You had to get like, like, you'd be reduced down to zero dice in your dice pool. You take the chance you, die. Yeah. You take the chance die, and you had to get a ten on it, or else you fail outright. Yeah, never seen it happen ever. No, never happened. So what you now have is the idea that a dramatic failure is a player-driven choice. So if they want to, if they fail, they can turn it into a dramatic failure, and if they do that, they get a beat. A beat is a is a, uh, a sub point of an experience point. So if you get five beats, you've got an experience point, and so beats can be collected in a number of ways. Uh, obviously, choosing to have a dramatic failure and taking a condition, even based uh, upon how you failed. Obviously, if you have a condition applied to you, you get a beat if you resolve it. So obviously, if you've got a good condition, one that works for you positively, and it, and you end it because you do something that you go, well, I need to do something, but it means this condition will end. You have done something proactive in the story that means you've lost something, so you get a beat. And if you have something bad affecting you and you find a way to resolve it, you get a beat point. So... What I see with this system, and some people have mentioned like, oh, well, I don't need to bribe my players to do things. But these are really just nudges to get players to be proactive in the game. Because one of the things I really damn well hate is where you get a bunch of players sat there. And in this kind of what I was talking about, the old way of gaming where you have it's very antagonistic between the person running the game and the players. Because players are worried, if I do something, something bad's going to happen, this paranoia. Well, now the players have more agency in basically dumping themselves in in in, in shit, yeah. and the reward for it is they will get some experience. Right, right, right. Well, Chris, have you ever had the situation where you know you got a player who's like, "I'm going to do this. I'm going to torture this guy," and they're like, "Oh, you know, what? never mind. They're going to lose humanity for that." Yeah, this gives you uh, mechanical incentive to uh, go ahead with that. Exactly. Because you know you would normally give, you know, you'd normally give out a role, uh, you know, an experience point for good role playing if they're going to engage in something like that. But yeah, this is like you know they take a condition like, you know, either they've got integrity uh, degeneration or uh, something else like that. Um, 
Let me just find some more about Beats. Um, is there anything else you want to say, Mike, about about uh, the conditions and how you think it applies in combat? Oh, how it applies in combat? Uh, that's a good point. Um, hmm. I think... I didn't really consider that all that much. Yeah. Uh, let me just find... Sorry, I'm just looking through the... Uh, the... Um, the PDF. I've mostly gone all the yeah. wrong way to it. Yeah, I guess it's, when, it's, you, it's when you consider combat, it, along with conditions, I mean, they definitely make you not play as optimally, because you could uh, resolve a condition during combat, and put your character in a really terrible situation. And you have, again, incentive to do that, uh, beyond simply a, a role-playing decision. Mm-hmm. Which is really, I think, what a lot of story games try to achieve now. They try to kind of give you that carrot so you want to uh, make the story a bit more interesting and create more conflict. Yeah, like I say, it's it's more player agency to kind of scare yourself. Um, just as I'm flicking through, the one thing you will also note in the merits section, there is a whole host of supernatural merits that basically cover a vast proportion of the supernatural merits that were in Second Sight. Ah, perfect. Yeah, so it, again, it, it reinforces that this book is for playing... You know, mortal characters doing stuff. Okay, um, so here's the you know, beats can be gained for um, you know fulfilling an aspiration. So characters have virtues, vices, and aspirations now. Um, for conditions and resolving them or taking them, uh, you get beats. Uh, for opting to have dramatic failures and taking a condition. Uh, also, if you get kind of if you're down to your last into your last health boxes, so you take a beat there. So in other words, again, these are all nudges to make you take risks, and risk is good. Risk creates drama, um, and of course, if you do any good story, uh, you know, good role playing, you know, the storyteller can just chuck them out to you, give you a beat for it. So it's kind of nice in that sense. Um, And the way that relates to experience is we've also got rid of the exponential scale of experience points. So, um, you know, each point is just a straight number. So it's just you want another point in an attribute, it's four experience points. No times whatever the current value madness. So that also means there's a few changes in character creation. Um, But that's really cool as well. Um, and I like that. It just simplifies things. There's no trying to do some maths on the fly. Yeah, Chris, with regard to experience and beats, would you think it's a good idea to um, maybe make a pool of beats? So whenever whenever a character receives a beat, it kind of goes to the group's pool. And once uh, you get, let's say, you get 20 beats in a session, then uh, there's uh, four experience points to just give out to everyone. Yeah, that kind of... Possibly. I think that, that might be a way of just sorting out the rounding issues with experience points because you could be left with, like, I've got three experience, experience points and, and and three beats. So those three beats I can't, I can't really do until I get some more. Um, the other related thing, so I think that really covers all the main change, I think the main significant changes of the rule system. Of course, the other thing they have to change a lot of, and of course they feature heavily in the God Machine, is ephemeral beings. So this is ghosts, spirits, and angels. So we get revised rules for these type of creatures, which is great because if you want to start making use of these rules now in whatever game you're playing, 
this would give you a way of basically uh, MacGyvering whichever system it is and you know changing up say if you just want to change the use the condition system you could use it and just leave the the morality trait of that game as it is or you, know, you there's ways and means that you can mix things up so we actually now get again uh, a look at the ranks of ephemeral beings the states of twilight and we get an insight into angels as well that appear in God Machines. So, you know, we've got uh, talk about gauntlet strength and the conditions and which allow spirits and ephemeral beings to manifest and exert their powers. And so there's kind of a flowchart of how these powers cause conditions that then allow a spirit or a ghost to then use another power then cause a, a, a further condition so you know how how a demon has to slowly manipulate a person until they can fully possess them or how a spirit has to slowly manipulate someone until they can fully claim them and you know absorb their soul um and yeah that's really cool and there's things like there's conditions uh with like they open a gate to the underworld or they open a gate into the shadow uh and so this also means there's a bit of there's already you could start making use of this to modify um i think quite quite easily the rules as they're printed in things like geist and mummy uh to make use of this of the new god machine chronicle rules um i was going to say something else that was kind of profound just then that i spotted uh as i was flicking through um mm -hmm. Uh, less profound is the fact that they just give us a flowchart, which explains how all this stuff works with spirits, which is definitely yeah. pretty useful. Um, yeah, it's nice that they've got, got spirits in there and ghosts and angels. It kind of opens up the type of antagonist that uh, that mortals can uh, attack against. They also talk about banes and uh, and bans against spirits. So obviously, ghosts now very low powerful, low ranking ghosts um, can be affected by salt and uh, other things that you could use to uh, ward them away and then eventually uh, perform an abjuration or an exorcism. So of course, as um, I think I've already spoken to uh, Matt McFarlane uh, on, uh, on Google Plus about this, but I think it shouldn't be too difficult to even modify uh, what's presented in Inferno to start making use of these. Um, and of course, equipment's been updated and there's a whole host of equipment and equipment that's useful for doing paranormal things, so like a curling camera. Um, and they also introduce something known as services. So basically, this is stuff that's it's not physical equipment. It's like if you need to go talk to an expert in in historical stuff, you would need to have, say, Academics 3, because you need to have the right connections in order to go talk to this person to then gain a bonus to your research roles in academics to research the the thing that happened back in Roman period or something. So that's kind of cool. And that relates to various things like also fixing equipment or creating things. Um, so there's a whole load of equipment and how it works. Um, and I think that's really, that's really, oh no, there's one last thing. Mm-hmm which kind of relates to um, uh, Reliquary, which is bygones. So oh, yes, again, yeah. they, they, update, yep. they update magical 
supernatural tools. So that kind of links into Mummy the Curse in that respect. And they give you a whole host of these. And we kind of get our own version of Robert the Doll. We've now got Tabitha the Haunted Doll. <laughs> Very much yeah. one. Yeah. And a viral video. So kind of, you know, ring style. Mm-hmm. So, and we get a new character sheet, uh, obviously. So overall, I'm perfectly happy with these. So I'm going to go through the SAS I've been writing uh, for for a Google Hangout. And, you know, I've just got to really kind of add in some, you know, conditions for particular scenes and I'll be good to go. I mean, the rules changes. It sounds like a lot and it sounds like a lot of micromanagement. I don't really see it as being too bad. To, it's no different to saying, oh, well, you've, you've been hit by the club and so you, you've got minus two to all dice pulls because you're stunned. You just say you're stunned, and that's a condition. You've just got to make, the moment you make, say, a the appropriate, say, um, stamina test, or you get medical assistance, that condition, that tilt, and then that condition are resolved, and you get a beat. <coughs> right on. Yep, and then you sling out the card which has the rules on it, and uh, you know you got a bunch of chits in front of you, and it's basically more of a fancy roleplay third edition. Uh, yeah, sort of. <laughs> Make less less annoying. Right um, on. Um, yeah, so I think uh, Chris, since you're going to be running a, a World of Darkness game using the new God Machine rules, and uh, you know here on the podcast, it, it probably seemed like there was a lot of new things to go over, but really they're probably not too difficult to use and play. Uh, maybe yeah. in a future episode we can uh, use a couple of examples from that and just kind of discuss how things work. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna use it for that game, and I will also be I'm, I'm already thinking because I'm running currently uh, an Iron Kingdoms RPG game. So as I'm doing that, I'm thinking about my Geist the Sin Eaters game, uh, which I want to run in future, and uh, I will be thinking about how I can apply the integrity system as it stands, to synergy in Geist. So hopefully there'll be... I mean, the nice thing, and I've, I've been thinking about this, I think the God Machine Chronicle and all these Chronicle books actually reinvigorate the World of Darkness in a very different way because I think it once more takes the toolbox approach of New World of Darkness and and it offers up the chance as people are waiting for appropriate Chronicle books to come out to be a bit more DIY uh, DIY with their game, you know, do it yourself and kind of just tinker around and go, hey, I could do this, I can play about with it. You revisit things in old books and you go, oh, I could just use that and rewrite it and you look at things in in different ways and you make things maybe easier to run. Um, I mean, we've already spoken about this, Mike. Um, the the um, the upcoming humanity system for Vampire the Requiem looks great to use in Vampire the Masquerade. Right. Well, I think, and this is why it was great to go over uh, V20 a bit in the previous mm. segment. Uh, we look at the God Machine Chronicle. With this coming out, it's not really a new edition. Rich Thomas didn't lie to us. It's not a new edition. He's giving us new rules and a new way to play the World of Darkness instead of just, you know new rules that just kind of change things but really ultimately give us the same game all over again Mm -hmm. so that's why i think this is totally freaking great yeah i it's it's warm it's it's really not 
I think the best way to say it's not a new edition. It is, as you say, it's a new way of playing games of horror. And I would say it makes it more akin in some ways. You can see inspiration, or at least you can see similar game design uh, thought processes to, say, Fate and, say, Gumshoe, uh, you know, for Trail of Cthulhu, um, you know, things like that. Like, um, it's it's cool. And, you know, obviously there's going to be people bitching and moaning about it out there, but that means now we've got three edition wars. We've got Classic World of Darkness, New World of Darkness, and God Machine World of Darkness. So, um, yeah, let's just have a big knife match in a in a, in a in a in a cage and see who wins um (laughs) cool awesome yeah i think that's it for this episode all right so uh we of course are darker days radio uh you can check us out at darker days radio at uh, gmail.com that's our email address website is darker-days.org facebook uh facebook.com slash darker days radio and of course the g plus community just search on google for darker days radio and it should pop up yes um, yeah, and of course, if people are interested in Cthulhu Tech, they can check out the recent uh, Google Hangout game we did of that. That's up on the on the G Plus. Uh, we've got more Hangout games somewhere planned, and we have we have a few Darklings coming up. Uh, we've got myself and Pete will be looking at Fading Suns, the uh, brother by another mother of um, World of Darkness, you could almost think in that sense, mm-hmm. and because um, uh, obviously that was written by uh, Bill Bridges and some of the artists similar to other World of Darkness games, mm-hmm. um, and we'll be looking at Cthulhu in more depth as a Darkling, having now played it. <laughs> and what else have we got in that list, Mike? Oh, we need uh, to have a Wraith episode to end the season. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. We'll have to figure that out. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's it for the episode. Um, We'll announce the contest next time. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Check out Mm flamesrising.com. Matt's website. Definitely a good spot. A lot of great reviews. And with that, um, yeah, good night. Good night. We are recording again. Awesome. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's just do it. Let's get live in three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Darker Days Radio. Oh, why don't we even start the episodes like that anymore? Yeah, we're trying to be more edgy and cool. All right, let's try that edgy again. Edgy and cool. All right. Don't worry, Mike. I've recorded that section as well. So that's awesome. brilliant. All right. Uh, yeah, three, two, one. So, this is where I have to shuffle through my notes. (laughs) I've got a lot of them.